Okay, welcome everybody. Janos hit the music like right when we went live. Pretty cool. Uh, speaking of that, we have someone new on the ones and two. We do. You all know that we fired Stan. Well, I can't even follow the firings and rehirings, but we, it's mo- been rough. Most recently, we had Kevin back. And when he learned he was going to have to eat a spoonful of his own super hot chili sauce, he actually didn't need to be fired this time. He voluntarily quit the he program. Just, after the show, he quit. He cut, I mean, we had to replace some stuff because he kind of like kicked some things yeah, over he, and was upset. He stormed out for sure. He said Melchizedek and he did. It was, it was rough. Yeah, I, th- I think he thinks that's a swear word. So we got, we got uh, someone new. Yeah, we went all the way to Eastern Europe to get a ref- everybody. Hey, it's Janos Kabai. Those of you who don't know, he's a very faithful servant at our church. Um, he's also, and this is a word that I had, to, I had to define for Isaac after I used it, Janos is what I would call unflappable. Would you say that's true, Janos? <laughs> is that unflappable? <laughs> I mean, that's a bird that's try- maybe it's trying to flap and it can't. But Janos cannot be flapped, which I assume is what unflappable means. I, st- I still don't know what it means, man. It sounds like an insult to me. You're saying you meant it as a compliment. It is a compliment. Being unflappable means you're like unperturbable. Okay. Well, you're one of the most unperturbable people <laughs> I've ever known in my life, well, man. Well, now it definitely feels <laughs> like an insult. Hey, the other good news. Yeah, yeah. Tell the people. We picked up our first sponsorship. Our very first sponsor. We've been, as you know, if you're a fan of the program, we've been desperately trying to get sponsors since day one so obsessive gardener he shot us over some peppers golden reaper this is just called orion oh that has that weird like the like a bird nose i guess they call that a beak a bird's nose what we got here sea reaper carolina reaper that's a real Carolina Reaper right there. So my hands are probably going to, if I touch my skin, it's probably yeah, going to burn. Don't touch your eyes after that. So we might have a, we might do something with these. We might but, try to lure Kevin But back. we definitely ain't starting off the episode by eating this stuff. No. Now what um, we can start the episode off by eating, check that segue out. Oh, yeah. This Our is good. Our other sponsor for the program today. It's is not, direct yeah. from the John the Baptist Diet Institute. Yeah. So John the Baptist was known for eating locusts and wild honey. And we happen to have here... A bag of locusts. If only we had the technology to like zoom in so you guys could really see the face on this little beast. Yeah, so this Sunday I preached at the church on John the Baptist and I went over the the John the Baptist diet and I was just like, dude, I can't believe no one's marketed this. There's every gimmick diet in the world. Daniel diet, uh, you know, Old Testament diet. And I was like, how come no one doing John the Baptist diet, man? Because you, let me tell you something. If you just if you went on the John the Baptist diet, you'd lose weight. The pounds will fly off because you're going to lose your appetite day yeah. one. You'd be like, I don't feel like eating. <laughs> but to do this right, we're going to take our first stab at the John the Baptist diet. Yeah. Giannis, uh, you want one? I already ate a bunch on Sunday. Okay, I believe you. So okay. I'm okay. All right, All right here we go. Should we eat it? I'm trying to chew right on the mic. It doesn't taste good. No, they're it's not. It's too good. dried. It's got that fish food. You know, like when you get the dried camarones? Yeah, but those at least taste like fish. That just tastes like dirt. It tastes like what fish food smells like. So, in defense of the cricket, I mean the locust and the grasshopper, 
I know what you're going to say. Uh, if you have them live, live like grasshopper, live termite, way better yeah. than this dried stuff. This dried stuff, but if you have it fresh, much better. Sam and I have both uh, have been a lot of places in the world. And we've had that. Uh, we've eaten our fair share of bugs. And, the you know, the ultimate, because alive, they're good. They have a little more going on. It is a little more disturbing to eat. But yes. if they're cooked properly by, like, within a culture that eats them regularly, yeah. dude. And you can get that here. You can't get, like, African-style or even, I've never seen Southeast Asian-style grasshoppers. But you can get Oaxacan-style they call them chapulines. Yeah, San Jose, a lot of restaurants serve chapulines. You can ask ask for them, and they're great. Pretty good, pretty good. Good with chips, like on your nachos. You lose, you know, a little nacho cheese, a little little chapulines up in there. Dina Bless says you need the honey to wash them down. That's what she knows her Bible because that's the other thing John the Baptist. That's true. I eats. forgot. I forgot the honey. We need some honey and a some camel skin belt. So Kim Becerra is going to go get some grasshoppers and we got to, we got to get into it. This is uh, a, yeah. this prologue has gone on long enough, but stay tuned. We're going to probably make Kevin eat one of these Kevin in order to, to get his, that's maybe that's the cost of re-entry. Like when he sees what he's missing, mm-hmm. like he sees us hanging out with Janos and feels sadness. Man, and can, I, so far it's an upgrade. That's true. So far Thanks, it's guys. an upgrade. I'm he just tried to do a sound effect, though, and I don't think he did it right. So. No, I think he was just trying to unmute himself. Oh, okay. But I it. think he also didn't do that correctly either. Okay. <laughs> well, let's get to it. All right. So we're doing kind of part two. We're going to wrap up this, this topic. We've been, it's, it's confusing because it's part four of our series on the Gospels, but it's part two of the subtopic we've been on, which is the historical reliability of the Gospels. And uh, we won't belabor it because we talked about it last time, but uh, it's a claim that's commonly made. These are not stories from this time and place. Their stories written much, much later by people who weren't really there in order to make religious and theological claims, but they're not historically viable. So we're not trying to prove in last week or this week that these words are true, that they're inspired by God, that what they're telling, you know, accurately reflects Mm -hmm. like theological truth. That's a separate set of arguments. We're just trying to make the case that these books are historically reliable. They represent accurately the time and place that they're written and that the kind of simplest interpretation of all the facts is they are what they claim to be biographies of Jesus written by people who either were or had access to eyewitness close friends yep. and personal um, associates of Jesus. So we got, we got a few more pieces of evidence to look at. If you missed last week, the, definitely check that out because um, we won't be able to review any of it. But we talked about the kind of non-Christian corroborative sources that, that tell stories that back up the witness of the Gospels. We talked about some of the undesigned um, coincidences between the Gospels where it looks like by accident they have all this agreement. We're going to start tonight by looking at something that's pretty nerdy but really amazing, actually, to look at. And that's the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. You want to give like a brief just kind of explanation of like the importance of ancient manuscripts and how they factor into... Yeah, one of, one of the things you'll hear, it's very, very common, is that... Um, you know, let's say the biblical authors were telling the truth. Well, most of those writings were lost, right. and they went through all kinds of changes over the next thousand years, and we have no idea what changes were made in those thousands that that, that thousand year period. And all kinds of different manuscripts now exist, and they all disagree with each other. So, let's say the biblical authors did do their best to tell the truth. We don't have access to that type of information. It's pretty common. I mean, you'll hear yeah. stuff like. 
You say you like, trust the Bible. You don't even have the Bible yeah. because this isn't the, this isn't that we've lost those. Yes. So common, very common argument. And so the point that we want to make here is just that if you look at the manuscript evidence we have just on sheer numbers alone and proximity to the events that they record, it just blows every other ancient document and many of which are, are considered very historically reliable mm-hmm. out of the water. Giannis, can you pull up that first chart? Um, this is, might be kind of hard for some of you to see. Oh, I like this better. Oh, come on. Yeah, Giannis, you just, you just put that chart completely over me. Yeah. Could you make it bigger? Man. Giannis, is there a way Sorry, that the I chart can... I had, <laughs> had special instructions. Could, could you make the chart man. also make him silent? Can the chart do that? No, I'm just kidding. So Man. this might be kind of hard for you to see, and we don't, we're not going to like read every single detail on here, but I'm going to walk you through some of it. Um, I have to walk you through it because you can't even see Isaac anymore. It's messed up. But this is really, I mean, once you grasp this, it's absolutely incredible. So what you see on the far left-hand side of the chart is the names of ancient authors um, who are well-attested in history, who people don't have any problem accepting as real um, Someone to, gave a downvote probably because they, they're blocking me. Oh, out. So, you know, just, just keep the downvotes coming, man. Yeah. If you like Isaac being covered. No, no. We want to sure. keep I, we, we want to keep the thumbs up. So let's not play that. <laughs> yeah, game. Let's not play that game. So lots of documents, lots of authors who are considered to be historically credible, um, who, who people have no kind of substantive doubt that they existed and that these stories that they wrote and histories that they wrote and letters that they wrote are factual and represent history. So that's the number, the list of names on the far left. And then you can see the next column is the date that their works were written. The next column is the earliest copy of those works that we have. And the next column after that, it's a very important one, is the time gap between the date that they were purported to be written and the date of the earliest copy that we have. So before we even move on to numbers, right off the bat, you can pull that down if you want to, Giannis. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> I was just going to see if you can work through those things with. If you had like, what would have been awesome. You're not the kind of person to do this, thankfully. But if you had just, while I was doing that, like your hand reached out from behind the chart and just slapped me in the face. Yeah, I, I'm not that person. No, no. You're much more passive with your aggression. Yes. You could have done like a magic trick where I cut back and Isaac is just gone. Yeah, I should have just that, bounced. That have been. it your way, man. You like me being covered, do you? Everybody would have got out of class early today. So the time gaps. We'll pull it back up in a second, but just so you know, what that's talking about is the gap in years between when this document was written and the earliest copy that we have. So pull that chart back up again, Giannis. Yeah, this is pretty significant. So when you look at something like Pliny or Pliny, which we talked to, who we talked about last, last week, 750 years between the writing of these documents and the earliest copy we have. So there were certainly, certainly copies long before that. But what you don't have is any, what they say in the scholarly world, extant copies mm-hmm. from before that. So there's a giant, giant gulf. Just I'll read off a couple more in case, for those of you who can't read it if you're watching on your phone or something. Plato, who again, incredibly influential person in the, in the modern world, 1,200 years between his works and the earliest copy of his works. A couple others that people will be familiar with. Caesar, there's 1,000 years Tacitus, there's a thousand years. Aristotle, there's fourteen hundred years. Sophocles, fourteen hundred years. And Homer, who who uh, it's worth mentioning, Homer's the Iliad is like the second best ancient document. When you say in terms of like yes manuscript evidence, 
The manuscript attestation, attestation. Yeah, manuscript attestation in terms of the extant documents. We're, we should have a whole separate purported. show. You said purported or like, I can't even pronounce it. I said, that's a different <laughs> from me and you. I said, I said, when they said they wrote it, when, they, <laughs> when, when it was purported to have been written is what I would say. So Homer's Iliad is, is re- we have a lot of copies of it compared to other things, but if you pull it up one more time here, Janos, there's still 500 years between the writing of the document and our first copy. Now, credit where credit's due. That's really amazing because yeah. the Iliad's old. Very old. So it's written in 900 BC and uh, the earliest but, copies and, and from 400. One important thing to note is that you might immediately go, well, it's like, well, then, d- does any of this stuff even hold weight? It's like, no, that's... It does. It, I mean, no, we have good reason to believe that these are these are pretty accurate. We don't have solid reason to doubt them. Um, but when you get to the Bible, it's a, it's a whole nother yeah. level. And part of the story is there's really good reasons, and we'll talk about some of these next week, why we don't have these documents um, from those ancient times. But so, th- so that time years. Now, you look at the Bible. We have our earliest copy of the New Testament, is from the year 130 A.D., which is, A, incredibly early in general, and B, incredibly close to the writing of those documents. So as you can see on the chart, less than 100 years elapse in between. So that's pretty amazing. Now, where it gets even more amazing is the number of manuscript copies. Because like I said, the Iliad, really kind of well-known as like very well attested. There's a ton of copies of this. Sophocles is also like that. So the Iliad, which is second best, has 643 ancient copies. Pull up the chart again, Yanis. The New Testament has a massive, and this is this number is already outdated. Oh, you should try to grab the number because it's on the bottom corner. You could get, you, you get <laughs> it's just creepy. We'll do that again for the Halloween special. Just under 6,000. So pull up the other chart, Giannis, because this is what really makes Just the like, impact. The Bible wins. The Bible wins. Plato, no good. I mean, 10. Homer, no good. Almost 10 times the copies of the Caesar Iliad. Caesar crossed the Rubicon. The Bible beats you. Do you have the bar graph there, Giannis, to pull up? Yeah, and he, get, we're oh, going to beat you with color graphics. I like that this cover, covered Isaac also. So this, this chart shows numbers of copies of, orig- of original language manuscripts in thousands. And you can see the New Testament is blue, and it's just absolutely massively blowing everybody else out of the water. The Iliad, you can actually kind of see. Plato's work, you can see. You can't even see him. You can barely see Aristotle. And by the way, some of these, some of these works that we didn't have time to talk about, like Pliny, Pliny, seven copies. And he's considered to be historically credible. Plato, seven copies between two authors, and that's it. Uh, considered to be credible. Uh, so again, just the sheer volume of manuscripts bears witness to the fact that what we have is incredibly, incredibly historically reliable. Now, next week, you can go ahead and pull that graphic down. People are starting to miss Isaac at this point, probably. What we'll talk about next week is that one of the results of having that many manuscripts is that there is a massive number of variants between manuscripts. This is a little teaser. And so um, you'll often get these claims of like, you can't trust anything that's in these New Testaments because there are hundreds of thousands of variations. But what I want to say, and we'll talk about that claim next week when we talk about contradictions in the New Testament or in the Gospels. But the, um, the thing I want to make, the point I want to make now is that the reason there are so many, the main reason that there are so many variants is because there's so many copies. Yeah. And it shows you how like 
misleading people could be because actually in all of the documents between this period and this period, we only have seven variants from, it's like, right. you got seven copies of it, man. We got 6,000. Right. And it's, and so that, that is kind of a, a misunderstood concept. People will throw out this massive number of variants. It's like, yeah, because we have so many copies. So we'll talk more about that next week. And by the way, that's just original language. So that almost 6,000 number is, uh, and it's climbing every day because more stuff gets found. But uh, that's just Greek. If you add Latin, if you add Syriac, Coptic, Arabic, all those other languages, it's more like 14,000 copies. Um, and this is a really cool fact that I didn't know until today when I was researching this, actually. If we compile, that, this is a quote from Norman Geisler, who's, who has passed away, but he wrote extensively on this. And he says that if we compile 36,289 quotations by the early church fathers of the second to fourth centuries, we can reconstruct the entire New Testament minus just 11 verses. So outside of manuscript copies, if you just take quotations that church fathers are making of the Bible, you can reconstruct the entire New Testament almost minus 11 verses, yep. which is pretty dang cool. Yeah, and it's a, it's just countless where, layers of like cross-check. It's like, oh, yeah. we'll see how this guy said this verse and this guy said this verse. So it starts to big, build a pretty pretty strong case. Yeah. And again, the thing to remember, don't worry about exact numbers, but just know that when it comes to the numbers of manuscripts and the earliness of manuscripts, the Bible doesn't just beat everybody else. It's like a crazy outlier. Yeah. You can be like a ultra skeptic that doesn't believe any history, like nothing we know it can be known type of thing yeah. and have that type of epistemology. But um, anyone who tries to act as if the New Testament on a, by historical standards doesn't doesn't square up with anyone else. It, they're, it's just demonstrably not true in any way, shape, or form. If anything, it's like the New Testament just, just defeats everybody. Yeah. Um, so you can always play the ultra-skeptic card, but if you're, you're being serious about the historical data, it's not even close. Yeah, and again, you can still say, well, I, that doesn't prove that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not what we're trying to prove. We're just yep. saying this number in this proximity to the events that are recorded makes it incredibly historically credible. Yep. It would be much harder to get away with inventing a bunch of details that weren't true. Uh, just to close the loop on this section, you want to throw up that Gary Habermas quote that I gave you, Janos? You know, you're, you've been on top of this, man. He has. You're doing a great job. Yeah, we should give him a low minimum light count probably. I mean, you're kind of being graded on the curve right now. That's true. But right now you're 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 an all star. Yeah, I would say number one. Number one. Well, Kevin trained me, so he deserves some credit. So any okay, mistakes you do credit. make tonight, we now understand why. Who so is greater, Elijah or Elisha? That's that's actually a good question. Giannis, who is greater, Elijah or Elisha? Um it depends who's saying it. If I'm saying Elisha The Bible. <laughs> the Bible. Which one's the Bible? Who gets the double portion? Who got the double portion? That's man. where you just aggressively... You want a double portion of this locust, mate? Double portion of the reaper? Dude, I do not want a double portion of those reapers. No, I'm, I'm actually... They're another level. I'm a, so just, I mean, yeah. we're not going to get sidetracked, but just so you know, I snack on like super spicy peppers, no problem, but there exist peppers in this bag that like even with all my pride, I wasn't... No, I'm not going to open up the show eating one of these things. No. Because they're, they're, they're another level. This goes back to the... um to the uh, rebellious divine council. Yeah, they, they're <laughs> responsible for this stuff, man. That's the, uh, these are thorns and thistles. Yeah. Now tell us in the comments if you, oh yeah, Zach Buffum, Janos is better than Kevin. Misaligned priorities parallel my desires. 
That sounds like a a lyric. It does. It sounds like a Project eighty six lyric. But I don't That's uh, no, that would be cold hard yeah. that's driven into parallel to Zach, go ahead and throw any Project you 86 lyrics you want. In the comments, not necessarily in the chat, if you're watching this later, in the comments as well, let us know if we should add a new segment to Theology Live that involves Kevin eating a hot pepper and then explaining a theological concept immediately after. That's already done. We need to hit 15 likes. So 15 likes and Kevin will eat a spicy pepper and then explain it. It's going to be called Spicy Theology Minute. Dude. He has 60 seconds after Six, oh, he swallowed. 60 seconds 60, to explain. Yeah. And I'm talking like, like, you got to explain Pelagianism in 60 seconds after mm-hmm. eating. This is I like it. the best idea I've ever had. All right. So uh, you can pull the Habermas quote up again. Look, Giannis even took it down because we weren't talking it. about it. He's on top of it. It's, it's probably too small too for you to read, but I'll read it to you. It's, he says, this is an excellent scholar um, who we've actually had here, which is awesome. Not on Theology Live, but at our church. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that true? Sorry, just Zach's posting more lyrics. We concentrate on the sun until our eyes. Oh, that's man. Six Sirens. That is. Project 86 and, and POD, uh, featuring Sonny Sandoval of POD. To show that you're an OG like Zach with Project 86, he went straight to the first album to a like not well-known song, and he made an interpretive decision about which how to spell sun. That is. That's, a, that's an important he gets interpretive it. decision. Zach gets it. He gets uh, it. All right, so Habermas says, the New Testament has far more manuscript evidence from a far earlier period than any other classical works. There are just under 6,000 New Testament manuscripts with copies of most of the New Testament dating from just 100 years or so after its writing. Classical sources almost always have fewer than 20 copies each and usually date from 700 to 1,400 years after the composition of the work. In this regard, the classics are not as well attested. While this doesn't guarantee truthfulness, it means that it is much easier to reconstruct the New Testament text. So, the reason we're spending so much time here is because this is really powerful evidence for just the kind of knee-jerk, I heard it somewhere and I'm repeating it type of skeptic thing of yeah. like, well, they were written way later and we don't even have the original words. And it's like, no, we, ha- we have very high degree of confidence that what we have is very, very close to the original. Yeah, and just kind of like the quick rebuttal. It's like, because you don't have, you're not going to remember all the numbers. You're not going to remember all the dates. But when you hear that, because again, it's very common. It's like, actually, no, man, you should look into it. Um, most of the stuff from the ancient world, we got 10 to 20 copies tops. And they're written like close to a thousand years after the fact. Uh, and the New Testament is thousands upon thousands within the first few hundred years. Yeah, and that's something that's a quick. Great- and it's like, no, you go research it. Um, and put the ball in their court, and then you also have time to go look it up. You just Google this stuff; it'll be you'll find the charts. Yeah. It's not like and then you put your sunglasses on and walk away. Concentrate on the sun until your, your eyes, eyes bleed. bleed. Okay, so here's another category of gospel trustworthiness that I think is really interesting. We'll move kind of quick here, um, but it's it, this is it's helpful, and I think it's one of those ones that's it's less of an apologetic when you're defending the historicity of the Bible, but just for your own understanding of it, and that's that. The claim that the Gospels are these made-up stories to make theological points for the early church is, is really argued against by the huge number of embarrassing things that are, that are there in the Gospels. Things that make the apostles look really bad, that make the kind of first Christians look really bad, and things that, frankly, you would be very, very unlikely to include unless you yeah. were just bent on telling the true story. So if you're inventing a story, you don't include details like these. Yeah, and important to note, like we live in the world of technology. So if you say something that's not truthful, 
Yeah, or you contradict yourself. There's so. way more likelihood of being like, dude, we 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 have the book, we have records. There's there's witnesses. There's social media. There's video. Everyone's recording stuff on a cell phone. So what happens is is that in the ancient world, um, there was much more, and through most history, there's much more likelihood people are going to like, uh, let's not include that part where I did this stupid yeah. thing. And so you kind of, you get rid of the bad stuff, you exalt your heroes in the story. Uh, and that's just standard practice. I mean, it's standard practice. And um, most people still would do that if, if they couldn't get so caught easily. And yeah. even with that said, with being able to get caught so easily, people still oh, totally. be, be and, lying and making stuff and up. And to be clear, you don't even have to lie. I mean, we're just talking about yes. you could just omit something that's embarrassing. Omitting an embarrassing thing that you don't want in the public. That's not even wrong. That would no. be fine. You could tell the story and just kind of like, you know, we do that just when we're telling stories to each other. Not me and you specifically, but people, you're telling a story and you did something lame. You don't go out of your way to include the lame thing no, you only said. Only when it's about someone else. That's true. Then you emphasize that then at expense of everything point. else. So there's, again, there's tons of things in the gospels that are examples of this, but just to name a few, um, all four gospels record Peter denying any affiliation with Jesus three times. And, um, it's a, for somebody who is a absolute pillar in the early yeah. church. So if you're Protestant, you're, Peter's like essential. He's a pillar, like top three, top five for right. sure. If you're Catholic, he's, he's the whole thing. He's the, the first Pope and the, the kind of, whole line goes through there. So no matter where you're at sort of in church history or Eastern Orthodox, Protestant. And for the early church, it's like a lot of their stories are about he's the one spreading Peter, the gospel. he's the dude. So the first thing you're going to do is omit the stuff that makes this guy look really, really bad. Yeah, and he does the opposite. There are many things Peter does that are embarrassing. We don't even have time to go into them, but the most prominent one is that four, to, four out of four gospels record him denying Jesus in a way that would be humiliating to say the least um unless everything about your world unless a you're telling the truth and b everything about your understanding of reality and how you relate yeah. and to a lot Jesus. of people think there's good reason to think mark's gospel is using kind of peter as a source so um you know it's one of those things mark looks up at peter and it's like dude you want to include that and you can yeah. see peter almost going like we have to we have to tell the truth, keep yeah. it in there, at my, even at my expense. And Mark's the first gospel, so it's not like he has to because the other people said that happened, right? Mm. And so there, it, he, and again, it's not just that. Peter's also the one who, you know, goes on the war path with a sword when Jesus is getting arrested and gets rebuked by Jesus. He's also the one who tries to tell Jesus not to pursue his messianic path and gets called Satan by Jesus. Yeah. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And Peter includes that. Now, uh, Obsessive Gardener, you're here a little late, but we forgive you. Our first you. sponsor. He sponsored us with these peppers. We, we gave you sponsorship props. We already also talked, all, but I'll, I'll You missed it. it, man. At the start of this episode, I ate the Carolina Reaper just like, no problem. I didn't even blink. Nothing. I ripped one in half and rubbed it on my eyes. The Orion, no problem. Um, what was the other one that I ate? The Golden <laughs> Reaper. <laughs> what was the other one that I ate? So convincing. This is that example of your creating embellishing details yeah, about what actually happened. Here's uh, Obsessive. We already told the other folks this, but what the plan is we're going to introduce a new segment called Spicy Theology with Pastor Kevin, where Kevin has to eat a pepper like this, and then he has one minute 
to explain a theological concept while he responds to the pepper at the same time. It's going to be great. So be back next week for that. So hopefully that concept makes sense that there are these embarrassing details. You also have the, you know, many times the disciples don't understand Jesus's teaching. One classic example that's in multiple gospels is Jesus is trying to give a metaphor about leavening and bread and the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples are like, oh dang, Jesus is upset because we didn't bring any bread on the boat. And yeah. Jesus has to be like, you guys seriously don't get it still at this yeah. point? There's tons. The disciples look like they don't get it. You have Thomas refusing to believe to the very to the very end. Peter's, like you said, the get behind me. Um, you have him chopping off the ear. Right. And it's just one thing after another. Uh, there, There's a storm, like, save us, we're all going to die. And yeah. it's just like countless stories. Um, the foot washing scene. Yeah. There's the fact one that, thing after the fact another. That Jesus washes their feet is crazy. But then also Peter's response, again, Peter's response to that is embarrassing. He's yeah. like, you can't do that. And then Jesus is like, no, I have to. So and he's like, if, well, then do it all. If you remove like your ultra skeptical lens, it appears that the gospel authors are doing their best to preserve the truth, even if it makes them look bad. Yeah. And again, it's baked into the design of the story that it be told this way. Now, um, Zach Buffum likes Theological Hot Minute. He also named it better than we did. And Zach also, uh, if you scroll up, you can actually click on the comment and bring it up. Um, that one. Zach brought up the example that I was going to bring up last, which is the first witnesses of the resurrection. Now, um, all four Gospels, again, all four, record that the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection are women. You want to give a quick explanation of why? Zach, Zach summarized it by saying the ancient world says no good to that. But yeah, what's your... so, um, well, one, so you have to have two or three witnesses in Jewish Jewish law to preserve a, to, to give testimony that an event happened. But in the first century, there was actually kind of rules that, that almost like, well, you got to have two or three witnesses be from a man. So for women to be giving the eyewitness account in the first century Jewish world wouldn't have been like, Oh, well, that proves it. In fact, it actually calls it into question. Yeah. Now, again, that's not right. We're talking about how the world was right. at this time. And so the last thing you would do is have like the women being the first, the first witnesses. You're going to be like, okay, let's, let's have our story shaped a little different yeah. to have proper kind of authorized eyewitnesses to give testimony to this. But the gospel writers are consistent. They're like, no, that's not how it happened. Right. Jesus appeared first to the women. And he did that to attest the most important thing, the most important event in human history, the, the resurrection thing. of Jesus. And so the thing that they're going to go on to argue about and have denied by both Rome and the Jews, and you know, th this is going to be the central like crux claim of the entire religion. And, they all say the first people who saw it, their testimony wouldn't even hold up in court at this yeah, time in history. Quickly now go tell the disciples. Quickly now go tell Peter. Yeah. And it's it's actually something beautiful um, and, and quite remarkable that, again, there's these little things that you might just skip over. One of the other ones was from last week. You, you mentioned um, that in the interrogations from some of the Roman leaders, um, there was documentation about two... Slave, slave girls. girls who are being tortured for their faith in Jesus. But they are called slave girls in the Roman world, but the, the author notes that they were deaconesses. 
in the early church, which is a position of leadership. So it's just this thing that you can like gloss over, but it's like, no, you're telling me within the very beginnings of Christianity, the slave girl who is at the bottom of the ladder in the Roman empire in the, in the church world, she's, she's she's given this deaconess position and it's a role of honor and and ministry. So it's showing you how from the the very beginning of Christianity, it's flipping everything upside down. Um, And this is the same thing that the, the, Gospels would preserve the fact that the first people to see the resurrection were these women. They go tell the disciples. And, and it's really, really important to note because we have a built-in worldview that makes us say, well, that's so cool that they're subverting the social order and that they're highlighting a marginalized group and that yeah. Jesus would. No one thought that was cool. Until very recently. The only reason why you think it's cool is because you've had 2,000 years of Christianity to teach you that it's cool. Exactly. You wouldn't have come to that conclusion. It's like... All, all, all the, the the morals and ethics that we, even people who aren't Christian, are barring Christian right. ethics to try to critique Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so there's no, there's nobody in the ancient world, Jewish or Roman, who sees that Jesus chose to reveal himself to women and goes, "Wow, look, look how cool mm-hmm. Jesus is! Like, you see what he did? He's flipping everything up." Nobody, like Isaac said, what you see there is an early movement towards what we now have, which is we value yeah. the marginalized and the vulnerable and the underappreciated and the yeah, overlooked. Yeah, there's actually remarks from people, hey, the only people, Christians, they're just poor people and a bunch of women. Yeah. And and it's like, well, that's just the ancient way of discarding them. Well, they're, they're poor and there's a lot of women who believe that. Now, that's inaccurate. It wasn't that only poor people and women were believing the gospel within the, within the book of Acts and the gospel account. You have rich people as well. So the body of Christ was diverse, but there was an overwhelming amount of the first followers from the kind of bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Yeah. And it did draw women in because it was this way of saying God, God's love is, is universal. Yeah. And that's, and again, it's why it's so transformative culturally for Paul to say, there's no Jew, Gentile, slave, free male, female. That's another good one. Um, the prayer in the in the garden, sweating blood, so the disciples fall asleep three times. Yeah, and they reveal weakness in um, the hero of the entire story. That Jesus is there asking for a way out. That he's and it's and if you understand Jesus, it's not you're not seeing weakness per se, but it's not. Yeah. But again, if you're making up a story about a person who's God, that's probably not. Keep the putting thing them in the chat do. as you come up with them. We won't we won't have time to read them all, but it'll be preserved. And so in the we, New Testament manuscript, the, the, the papyri manuscripts of <laughs> YouTube chat. Yeah, that's right. This someday when historians marvel over this program, yeah. they'll be like, and look at the people who commented on these geniuses. They talk about peppers and New Testament manuscripts. We can't figure it out. Yeah, we don't know what people at this time did. But I mean, to the point, you guys, as you're, wa- as you're hearing us talk, if, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, they're just coming to your mind. There's so many of them. Yeah, that you, like if you were just telling the story to your friend, you'd skip that detail and you wouldn't even feel guilty about it. Like, I'm, I'm not saying, again, that they would have to be liars or like changing the story. It's just that, hey, I'm telling it my way. And in my version, I'm, it shows that they are really dedicated to telling exactly what happened, even at their own expense. And there's, there's tough words of Jesus as well. Yeah. So stuff that for later audiences who wanted to make Jesus more palatable. Right you could have easily kind of, well, let's not include this type of detail. Yeah, there's actually many, many things that Jesus said that would have been tough for early Christians that they would probably prefer to not have to defend, including stuff like, um, 
actually wrote a few down in a different section here, but he, he calls a Gentile. There's reasons behind this, but he call he calls the Syrophoenician woman dog. Yeah. Um, he calls his followers evil. He says, if you who are evil know how to do good things, um, he shows, he tells his followers that they should go and do the stuff that the Pharisees say to do at one section, which mm-hmm. Pharisees, not friends with the first Christians. So you, so again, um, and then e- again, sort of like the bleeding in the garden thing, you have him dying on the cross asking why God has forsaken him. Yeah. So there, so yeah, if you're trying to create a fake version of this character yeah. to be the leader of a religion, this is the kind of stuff you would not. Or here's, here's a good one that I haven't, I'm sure other people have thought about it, but um, we showed through previous episodes, we talked about this, but the first church, the first Christians very early had an extremely high Christology. In other words, they were worshiping Jesus as God very, very early, and the Gospels are written in in Jewish ways that are saying Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. But then you have Jesus saying like, you know, no one knows the time right, or the hour. So that's something like later people who believe Jesus was in fact God incarnate would be like, that's a tricky one. We're not going to lie and say he didn't say that, but we're not going to put in that difficult passage. Right. Or where Jesus says, don't you know any, only God is good yeah. type of thing? Hey, that's going to be a little bit confusing, but it's showing that that they are describing reality and giving kind of testimony to the to the eyewitnesses to the best yeah. of their ability. Including things that would be very confusing. And, and equal, so that those are things that Jesus said that it would have been more convenient if they hadn't recorded. Yeah. And then you also have the kind of opposite case you can make, which is that Jesus should be saying a bunch of stuff that he doesn't say if the, new, the early church is constructing this character. Because there's all, we know from Paul that there's all sorts of issues that the early church is wrestling with from how do you organize your church services, the role of women in church, how should people be dressed? What do we do about spiritual gifts? And on and on and on. All these things that Paul is dealing. Jew-Gentile relationships. Yeah, that's a good point. That's the, like, how does, how do New Testament Christians relate to Old Testament law? Yeah. Is Paul's having to address in every one of those letters pretty much. And when we get to the Gospels, it's not that it's not existent. You have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But it's, they're not like inserting, and this is where Jesus taught us this about the law. It would have been easy for oh, them yeah. to do it, but it's like, nah, Jesus didn't address that. If Sorry. you're trying to, again, create a fabricated story to, to make your religion work, then you'd be like, and then in this sermon, this is Jesus's sermon about speaking in tongues. And this is Jesus's sermon about how to deal with circumcision. And um, so it's in the words of Jesus, you have both things that he does say that are inconvenient and would probably be removed if this wasn't an honest account and things that would have been added if this was a fake account. Um, on, along those lines, there's something else that's kind of interesting, um, which is that Jesus, just the teachings of his parables alone are, make it hard to believe that these aren't being just recorded mm-hmm. and then transmitted by the Gospels because the parable is a Jewish storytelling form. It's a Jewish teaching tool that the Christians almost never did after Jesus. So Jesus did it a ton, and then the early Christians hardly did it at all. Mm-hmm. So number one... Um, unlikely that they would be putting all these parables in Jesus's mouth if he wasn't actually teaching them because we know by the time these documents are written, it's not a common thing for Christians Mm -hmm. to do, to tell parables. Not only that, but all four gospel authors would have to have created unique original parables to put in the mouth of Jesus. And so do you you see what I'm saying? Because they have some that overlap, but each of them have unique parables as well. So it's a much simpler hypothesis to say, 
this was an actual teacher who actually taught these parables and they were recorded than to imagine that these later Christians who didn't use the parabolic teaching tool are yeah. like inventing them and putting them into the later story. Christians who never heard seventies music. Right. Just happened subsequently to write the world's greatest, the greatest. disco ballads in the universe. So good that they've lasted 2000 years and people from all around the world. If people even don't like Christianity, I just want that as a clip. Like you theology say, Thursday, just well, just you saying like Christians had never heard seventies music and they wrote the greatest disco. Ballads. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, <laughs> but that, that really is. And, and to your point, the parables, some of them, especially some of the parables are some of the most brilliant pieces of storytelling, teaching period, period. in human yeah. history. And so it's really the idea that there's one genius yeah. who was accurately recorded rather than four geniuses who all happen to make this guy sound pretty similar while inventing parables, even though yeah. it's not a genre that they were familiar with. Um, and you, I mean, the prodigal son can be told in every culture, in every mm-hmm. language, in every point in history. Yeah. And still completely break you and shatter you and move you. Like yeah. it's that good. Yeah. Parable of the sower is on that category also, I would say. Um, and so, so yeah, considering the genius of those parables, it's just a, it's a bigger stretch to say these later Christians invented them and put them in the mouths of Jesus. Similarly um, to that is also the term, the son of man, which was Jesus's preferred term for himself. Mm -hmm. But Christians subsequent to Jesus don't really use that term to describe him, which is interesting. Not a lot of people talk about that, but that's that term. Jesus uses it for himself, but you don't see early Christians really using Mm -hmm. it. So again, just another bit of evidence that the words of Jesus are being transmitted accurately rather than being created by later Christians. Probably not the title they would have used for him. I just remembered something. Did we forget did we forget our other little segment? That's next. Okay. You ready for it now? I'm ready for it. It's time for the tweet of the week. <laughs> That's not a I don't like <laughs> that not, tweet. That is not a good tweet. Giannis, you just got down. You were you were rocking it. Wait, hold you- on. Let me ask a question though. Did you or Kevin choose that tweet? It was a collaborative decision. You did it together. I thought it was hilarious. I think you were no. manip- you were manipulated by, by an evil leader. I want to give it to us one more time. It's not. Th- <laughs> that, <laughs> I kind of like it now. No, that's not good. <laughs> it's Is not that a tweet. Not how Twitter works? No, it's a, it's a tweet. <laughs> it's not a duck dying. Like a duck dynasty. All right, yeah. so today's sometimes sometimes the tweet of the week is going to be something we're going to debate or or take issue with. Sometimes it's going to be something that's really theologically profound. Today what it is is just me kind of commending a theologian that you should follow on Twitter. Um and specifically because of the tweets he makes on Sundays. This is a theologian and author and pastor Andrew Wilson from the UK. Really great author, He's good. great thinker. He's really good. And what he does every Sunday is he has a Happy Lord's Day tweet that it will just be the most beautiful, over-the-top, amazing theological idea, but expressed in a kind of like um, ecclesial-sounding way, um, liturgical-sounding yes. way. And it's always ended with Happy Lord's Day. It's so poetic it, without being poetry. Yes. It's poetic, and it's beautiful, and it's kind of all of them are designed to like, you wake up on Sunday morning, and you see that tweet, and you go like, let's go to church. You're like, how is he doing this every Sunday, man? Sunday come every seven days, and you still got to... Good Lord's Day one every time. Yeah. So we're just shamelessly plugging a theologian we like here and telling you to look at his Twitter every Sunday. Here's one example 
He says, every reign in human history ends with the grave swallowing the king or queen. Today, we celebrate the glorious exception when the king swallowed the grave. Where, O death, is your victory? Happy Lord's Day. Now, if you were thinking, maybe I'm not going to go to church this morning, kind of tired, I don't really want to get dressed, and you read that tweet, and you still don't go to church, I'm not going to say you should question your salvation. Jesus rose from the dead, and you, you can't, can't even get, get out, out of bed. bed. Keith Green said it best. So Keith that's Green also week. has a prodigal son song that'll make you cry. It will. I like Obsessive Gardener saying that the prodigal son makes him feel like crying almost every time he hears it. I, I agree. It's okay, the most here's powerful story. Three prodigal son recommendations. Okay. Keith Green. Uh, Keith Green. And What's the song called? The uh, Prodigal Son Suite, I believe. Uh, so that's the first one. Then the second one is by Dustin Kensrew oh, yeah. called Please, Please Come, Come Home. Home. Okay, this is good. And then the third one would be, this is a little mixed because it's a little weird, but it's uh, Dustin Kensrew's band in a different format, Thrice, yeah. Child of Dust, which we just read the lyrics. Uh, we've yeah. known the song forever, but I listened to the lyrics. And I was like, oh, it's man. It's actually very, very impressive, um, like intertextual theology. This is a guy who at this point in his career is very gifted at saying, boom, here's an, here's a concept. He starts with the prodigal. And by the end of the song, you've seen that theme all throughout scripture. Pretty yeah, no, incredible. It's, it's really, it's, it's really good. So, uh, thrice child of dust and then Dustin Kensrew, please come home and Keith green, the prodigal son sweet. Yeah. Any other ones? Those are the, I mean, you, that's put them in the chat. If you got other prodigal son recommendations, prodigal son jams while you're doing it, hit the like button, subscribe. If you haven't. Yeah. Ring the bell. As they say, ring the bell, ring the bell is the, that's when you get notified. Okay. We've got 15 minutes left to do one more thing. Casting crown song prodigal. Thank you. Obsessive. There's another, the recommendations coming, keep them coming. And we're going to move into our last piece of um, evidence for the historical reliability of the gospels. And this is something that could easily become a full episode length rabbit trail. So I'm going to try to not dive as deep into it as I want to. And, and this one is just the historical details that the authors include in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is of central concern because if the gospel authors don't know what they're talking about in terms of the place and times that they're writing about, then you can throw the whole thing out. Um, and we could think of modern analogies for this. If, if I claimed to be from Gilroy, so say you meet me somewhere else and you say, oh, I'm from Gilroy. And I go, oh, I'm, I grew up in Gilroy. I lived there for 10 years. Then How many times you go to the garlic festival? You're like, the garlic? What's, what's, what's the there? garlic festival? That, and that's an obvious one. You could even be like, like hey, which 7-Eleven did you go to? Yeah. And if I can't tell you, at least in the, you know, in the 90s Gilroy, if I can't tell you, I went to the First Street 7-Eleven. So if I immediately start getting details wrong, or if I'm like, Oh yeah, I grew up in Gilroy. I love it. I love my the, my favorite beaches are in Gilroy. Mm-hmm. And you immediately go, "There's no beaches in Gilroy, yeah. dude." Like, what are you talking about? Or you go like, "Oh yeah, I love to climb to the summit of the six thousand foot peak that we have in Gilroy." You, I used to get poke bowls in Gilroy all the time. That's a that's a heartbreaking one because that still is not possible. Where's the poke bowls? Where are the poke bowls? Zach Buffum, Iron Maiden, Prodigal Son, <laughs> but I don't think this helps. I've never heard that one, but I'm pretty sure. It's not going to be theologically credible. Probably not. So you, but you get the point. If I, if I get basic details about Gilroy wrong, it's really clear I'm not actually from Gilroy. Mm-hmm. And if and it's even more specific, let's say I say, yeah, oh, I grew up in Gilroy in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
mm-hmm. and you go, oh man, did you like, you go to first street coffee? And I'm like, I've never heard of first street coffee. You'd be like, well, dude, if, if you were a high schooler in Gilroy in the early two thousands, you've heard of first street coffee. Yeah. And, and so, even like to the spe- specificity of the gospels, it would be like, oh yeah, I love their frosty mint mocha. And it was like their special type yeah, of thing. That was, or, that, or was like that was real. A, oh, cause I'm from Gilroy You could say like, Oh, Odie's kitchen sink. No. Yeah. Oh, of course I loved Odie's. I always had a kitchen sink type of thing. And then all of a sudden it checks. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. And similarly on the opposite side, if they're getting stuff wrong at a really obvious level, then we've got a major problem. So if I'm like, oh yeah, I love Odie's. I loved their poke bowl. Like, yeah. You don't get, you don't get sushi at Odie's dude. Yep. So that I'm sure that kind of makes sense. The, uh, yeah, Zach, Zach Buffum says if they say they love downtown, you know they're not from Gilroy. On, I'm not going to co-sign on that. That's Zach Buffum talking. doesn't reflect the uh, beliefs of South Valley Community Church or its pastors. Come on, but uh, the short version, and I'll give some examples, is that the gospel authors, especially as ancient authors, are unbelievably accurate in terms of their familiarity with and their consistency in their descriptions of their place and time, geographically, culturally, and in every other way. And um, this doesn't seem as impressive to us as modern people, but like you said earlier, they can't Google this stuff. Like if you're not from there and if you weren't there during the time when it happened, you can't go research. So like one tiny little example, because they do this with famous places, tiny places that aren't famous. And that's more impressive, by the way. Yeah, the smaller places are more impressive. Um, Bodies of water, big ones and small ones, all kinds of travel travel routes, all kinds of stuff that are regularly referred to consistently between them but they also all have unique ones that they didn't get from each other. Um, so one really random example of this um, is Jesus. He's giving one of his speeches where he's giving woes, and he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. That's brutal, first of all. It is brutal. But those three towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, are all, were all, within a couple miles of one another at that time period. Um, Capernaum was a well-known town, but Chorazin was not only not well-known at the time, shortly after. We know where where it is now because of archaeology, that it's in the right spot. Um, But scholars believe that there was literally no way that the gospel authors could have known about Chorazin unless they were actually either from there or talking to people who were from there at that time. Because mm-hmm. there's, there's no other literary reference to Chorazin. We only know about it because of, geor- of archaeology, rather. So, and this is the most important thing about this. This is not true of the slightly later pseudepigraphal gospels. Mm-hmm. So you have all these fake gospels. We should probably do a whole episode on these at some point. On That's true. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip. Um, what else? Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Nicodemus, which, of uh, all kinds of fake gospels. They're called pseudepigraphal because they're not really written by the person who it says it's written by. They can't do this correctly. And so these are, these are gospels that the simplest way to say this is the claim that's made about the gospels being fake is actually true of these ones. Mm-hmm. Meaning this is what a fake gospel looks like. And they can't do place names. Most of the time they don't even try. No, they don't. I mean, this is what, what, what kind of blew my mind when I was doing the research for this is that, um, so the gospel of Thomas, the only location it names is Judea, which would be the equivalent of me claiming to be from Gilroy, but only being able to name California. Yeah. Um, that's the, right. That's the, a good example. The gospel of Philip, 
Philip names Jerusalem and Nazareth, and that's it, and, and the Jordan River. And um, the Gospel of Judas mentions, like you said, zero locations at all. Because they know to, it's like they're going to get busted. Yeah, because they, they don't know. And they don't know. And so the, the Gospel authors mention dozens upon dozens, and some of them are incredibly tiny like Chorazin. In and, the year of so-and-so, in this region, under this governor, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Even the, routes you, the route options to get from one place to the other. The road to Emmaus. Yeah, the road to Emmaus, the multiple ways to get from the Gentile world to the Jewish world. How do you do it? By avoiding Samaria. Road to Jericho, yeah. And so uh, this is stuff that does not seem impressive to an internet world, but you have to know for an ancient author to get that stuff correct is basically impossible unless you were actually there or you were talking to people who were. Um, that's also true of the kind of some of the cultural stuff. There's, there is a Jewishness, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. to the Gospels that would be... I mean, it shouldn't, it's not just that it would be hard to imitate, because again, the pseudepigraphal Gospels cannot do it. Mm-hmm. So um, one really interesting example, I'll be brief here because this is super nerdy, but um, there were every culture has like names that are super popular. So chances are everyone watching know, knows someone named John. You know what I mean? You know someone named John. You know somebody named, I don't know, Paul, whatever. These popular S- names. Sam. Sam. You know at least one person named Sam. So... That was also true in the Jewish world, but to an even more extreme degree. They've done studies on like how popular some of the most popular names were among Jewish people living in this region, mm-hmm. in, in like the Jerusalem region. And it was like names like Mary and Simon and John were so popular that they had Jesus actually is another one, incredibly popular name, that had to be used with what's called a disambiguator. And disambiguator is just a thing you add to the name to make it clear which Mary you're talking about. So Magdalene is a disambiguator. Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's a disambiguator. Jesus of Nazareth is mm-hmm. the way to like, say that this is the Jesus I mean. So it'd be like if you knew three people named Sam, and you were like the tall Sam, the pastor Sam, yeah. the bald Sam, the Sam with the big beard. Like there's a, You would have to add... Yeah, four, I got some. Yeah, please feel free to keep them to yourself. <laughs> They can't be spoken on TV. This is going, Sam the tall guy, Sam the pastor. Well, what about the reason I was doing so many <laughs> is because of the terror of if you <laughs> stepped in and took over. So so these disambiguators Sam wise the brave. Sam wise the what about Sam? I want to hear Everyone more. Forget about, about Sam, man. He's the one who put Frodo on his back, carried him up Mordor. Man, Frodo get all the credit. I can't carry your burden, Mr. Frodo. But I can carry you. He practiced that before this episode. I, I didn't, but that was okay. pretty good, it was, huh? It was, it was, it was okay, good. It was okay. It's just the same as Tom DeLonge in Blink-182. It, it was close. It was close. So, um, yeah, so Bar Jesus, uh, Obsessive Gardener gives another example. So this was a really common naming convention in a very specific time and a very specific place. And the amazing thing about the Gospels is that they apply disambiguators to names that need them according to the customs of the time and not ones that yes. don't. So an unpopular name doesn't need one. And if in like, you can do this on your own after you're done here. If you want to go read the gospel, like descriptions of the 12 disciples where it lists their names. Yes. Half of them will have disambiguators and half of them won't. And what you need to know is they've done a ton of studies on this. And though, uh, the ones without are unpopular names and the ones with them. I mean, there's multiple disciples with the same name. Yeah. So you have Simon the zealot and you have, Simon Peter. And so, um, yeah, go back and look at those. Really interesting. Um, You also find that because if you're a reader of the gospel, you know Jesus is Jesus. You don't need a disambiguator for that. But when the gospel authors, and look for this, it's really interesting. 
when the gospel authors quote someone who's talking yeah. about Jesus, then he becomes Jesus of Nazareth all of a sudden. Yes. So a quotation where someone's discussing Jesus, they'll call him Jesus of Nazareth, not just Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but if so, the, they know you as a Christian. Yeah. No, G- when I say Jesus, we're talking about Jesus. I'm just got to say Jesus of Nazareth. But when they're preserving the character. quotes from obser- eyewitness observation that would have used that, that's when it's preserved. Right. So the narrator does not use the term Jesus of Nazareth. He just says Jesus, but the characters will all yes. add the disambiguators exactly when they're necessary. Which, again, we've been given a number of these that by themselves, like, oh, that's interesting. But it starts to become like... Un, unlike you, you can't art. It's like, dude, yeah. there, there's at least at minimum, like a lot of truth in here. Yeah. You, you know, we're not on word of God or inerrancy yet or anything like that, but, but it, seems it becomes to be hard to be to like the story. It, you have to be so like committed to your skepticism, not to say, dude, it sure seems like this stuff's pretty early. They're pretty committed to telling the truth and they want to preserve the best to the best of their ability, the historical records. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, there's a, I mean, we could talk all day about other examples of them knowing customs from the day, like the Roman tax system is accurately represented. The singing of the Hillel Psalm Mm -hmm. on Passover is there. The knowing controversies about tithing dill and mint and cumin and example after example. And again, the pseudepigraphal gospels cannot do this. And if you read them, you can see it. They just don't sound like this. There's no, the, the place is not a character in the pseudo gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just this massive difference of these books that are much, much closer to the story. So it is 827. We're going to wrap it up there. Next week, we're going to jump into contradictions between the gospels. We're going to look at the question, are the gospels full of contradictions between each other? Mm-hmm. Are the manuscript variants a problem? Do we need to be worried about these hundreds of thousands of variants and other things along those lines? Keep in mind, um, we will have a Q&A at the end of the series. So if, Yeah, get the questions ready. You want to throw my email up there? Um, that'd be great, Giannis. Um, if you've got questions, He's shoot on them to it. me. Look at that. So much faster than Kevin. Better. Giannis, we'll talk afterwards about the, your long-term role here. On Theology Live. Give us a like if you like Giannos. Yeah, if you like Giannos, throw us a like. He's already got 15. Pretty good. And we will see you guys next week. See you later.